would invite you now to turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. As we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. Today we'll particularly be looking at Mark 2.23, all the way down to 3.6, 2.23 to 3.6. And as you're turning there, we'll read the text throughout the message in just a moment. Let me ask you a question. If you were to give yourself a score or grade for your religious commitment, how would you score it? What would, you, what would it be? How would you score it? What would it be? How do, how do you grade someone's commitment to their religion? Now, if that seems like a difficult question for you, you shouldn't be too concerned, and I say this a little in jest. Some non-Christian psychologists have already developed a system for us. It's called the Religious Commitment Inventory. Currently, researchers and therapists use the RCI-10, which consists of the following questions to help someone understand how committed they are to God. Now, here's the, the survey. I'm not expecting you to participate in this, but if you want to score yourself, there's 10 questions. Uh, and you, score, you do a 1 through a 5. So a 1 would be not at all true of me. 5 is totally true of me. A 50 gets you like the most points. You're the most committed ever. And a 1 is you're not committed at all. And here's the things that they... This is their list. This is what they would say constitutes commitment. 1. I often read books and magazines about my faith. 2. I make financial contributions to my religious organization. 3. I spend time trying to grow in my understanding of my faith. 4. I, religion is especially important to me because it answers many questions about the meaning of life. Five, my religious beliefs lie behind my whole approach of life. Six, I enjoy spending time with others of my religious affiliation. Seven, religious beliefs influence all my dealings in life. Eight, it is important to me to spend periods of time in private religious thought and reflection. Nine, I enjoy working in the activities of my religious affiliation. And ten, I keep well informed about my local religious group and have some influence in its decisions. <laughs> a lot of religion in there. Now, if you were thinking through that, I just want you to know like, where you would be based on their standards. If you scored a 26 in those things, you're considered average. You're the typical religious person. If you score a 38 or higher in their assessment, you're highly religious. The average church goer scores a 39, by the way, just so you know. And if you're a therapist in a Christian agency or a pastor, guys who are elders at this church, we're supposed to score a 48 or above. Okay? So different levels of commitment. So the question is, what would you score? According to these professionals, are you committed or complacent? Now let me ask you an even better question. How would Jesus score religious commitment? What kind of grade scale would he use? And what would be the consequences, if any, of scoring a lower grade? Now, this is not some empty hypothetical question. Your understanding of Jesus' understanding of religious commitment 
and how it differs from the popular understanding of religious commitment carries with it very real consequences. Let me just list a few. A feeling like you never measure up could be a real consequence of not understanding the difference between the way Jesus scores commitment and the way religion scores commitment. So also would be a nagging ignorance of your spiritual state. If you never really know where you are with God, it might be because you don't understand the way that Jesus scores commitment. If your evangelism is absolutely infective because you don't know really how to share the gospel with anybody, it could be a consequence of you not understanding the way that Jesus actually scores religious commitment, what you're working for with the people you're trying to evangelize. Some of the more serious outcomes could be absolute joylessness in your Christian experience. If you go through your Christian life and you do not have joy or you just show up out of mere rote, it may be an indicator that you don't know how Jesus scores commitment as opposed to the way that you or the popular religion scores commitment. Other symptoms would include spiritual burnout. And the most important, and the one that I'm the most concerned about, and I think you would be too, the greatest consequence of not understanding the, the difference between the way Jesus scores religious commitment and the way popular religion scores religious commitment would be this. Self-deception about your own salvation. It's very possible in a room this size with this number of people that there could be someone in here who would have taken the RCI 10 and probably given themselves something like a 38, a 39, or a 40, or even a 50. And yet, it's possible that if you were to take Jesus' RCI, you wouldn't score anything at all. You need to understand that religious and spiritual confusion dominated the first century recipients of Mark's gospel in the same way that religious confusion dominates our own culture. And that's why Mark includes this particular section of his gospel. There were widely varying religious paradigms and, and concepts that cluttered the theological landscape of that day. You had atheists. You had emperor worshipers. You had the Greek and Roman mythologists. And then, of course, you had Judaism. And so the question for these Jewish people who are beginning to come to faith in Rome as they're hearing Peter's presentation of the Gospel through Mark is, where did Jesus and His program fit among the gods? I mean, we've seen so far throughout the book of Mark, as Mark has been presenting Jesus as the divine Messiah, that the normal, everyday people, they really get it and they love Jesus. I mean, in fact, Mark is careful to bring up that the people that are responding to Jesus are from Galilee. They were the less religiously significant. It was the people who were closer to Jerusalem that were considered to be more pious. And so as they're reading this, they're understanding like, Wow, it's the like, people you wouldn't expect. These are the ones that are receiving the message. And all the while, as we see how Jesus is growing in popularity, and we keep hearing about crowds and all these people coming to Him and all kinds of people following Him, there has been at the same time this growing and subtle hostility to Jesus as well. Maybe you didn't notice it because we were so focused on the way that the crowds were responding to Him. But it really begins all the way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 40, 
When you look back there in Mark 1, 40 to 45, do you remember what Jesus did? He broke the law, what they considered to be the law, by touching a leper. He did something that would have made him unclean. And then he told that leper, after he was cleansed, to go where? To Jerusalem. (laughs) And to tell the priest about it. So Jesus, right at the beginning of the ministry, shoots a flare right across the bow and says, all right, pay attention, I am coming to challenge the way that you typically perceive the way things should be done. And then the hostility grows. It's chapter 2, verse 1, is when we see that in chapter 2, 1, all the way through verse 12, that Jesus heals this guy who comes through the roof, but he doesn't just heal him, he offers to forgive his sins, right? He says, son, your sins are forgiven you, and The Pharisees, at this time, the scribes begin to ask questions in their heart. So now they're questioning. But then it gets to verse 13. They get a little more bold in their opposition. Instead of just questioning in their heart, Jesus begins to hang out with tax collectors and tax gatherers. And what do they do here? Now they actually verbalize a question of opposition. But who do they do it to this time? They don't do it to Jesus yet. They're not that bold. They ask his disciples, like, why is he doing this? And then it escalates. And we're going to see here in chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, that they're going to ask Jesus a question directly about his own disciples. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, they're going to ask a question to Jesus directly about his own practice. All the way up till you get to chapter 3, verse 6. This is where everything's leading today. Check it out. Chapter 3, verse 6 of Mark. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So the normal religious people of the day, they don't like Jesus. And yet the normal ignorant folks of the day, they do like Jesus. And so Mark is clarifying for us Jesus' relationship to the religious establishment. We're seeing that, yeah, he gets along really well with the people who are kind of unworthy and on the outside. But what about the people who think themselves worthy? What about the religious crowd? How do they perceive Jesus? How can we expect our faith to be perceived by other people who consider themselves to be religious? I think the indicator is going to be pretty clear. We should expect hostility and opposition. Even from the people that we think would be our closest allies and friends. Specifically, the text unpacks two sources of religious hostility toward Jesus. All so that we could be sure that we're actually following him and not some popular substitute. Mark is separating Jesus from the popular religion of the day so that we can see or make sure that we are actually following Jesus and not some type of substitute. Now that being said, I need to warn you something about this text. I don't know how many of you were reading this with me this week, but I want you to know that of the things that we've covered so far as a church, at least in my time here, this will be one of the more difficult texts that we've covered. Because of the cultural space between us and the original readers. You're going to read some of the illustrations and you're going to think, I don't get that, that doesn't make sense to me. And you're going to read some of the stories that Jesus appeals to and you're going to think, I don't understand why that's significant. And then you're going to read some of the laws that they had and you're like, well, I don't see that law anywhere. And so 
I need you to work with me today. This is going to be some serious labor in the text. And I think if you know anything about me, it is my greatest desire to simplify and clarify truth. So I'm going to work with you on that. But I want you to know that you've got to like gear up today. We've really got to get into this text so that we can uncover this truth for ourselves. And once we find it, it is a significant one. Let's look at this first source of conflict. It's this Jesus' expression of faithfulness. Jesus' expression of faithfulness. Jesus' expression of faithfulness clashes with popular religion. Jesus' expression of faithfulness clashes with popular religion. Look at verses 18 to 22. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now let me give you an overview of what's taking place here. Jesus is being challenged. He's being challenged because of the behavior of his disciples. And specifically, the religious crowd of that day is upset by the fact that his disciples aren't doing what? What do you see there? Fasting. They think, the religious people of the day, the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist, They think that these more harsher expressions of religion, like denying self, that is equated with godliness. So two popular religious movements of the day think, or or setting the example that if you follow God, it's really going to be a harsh and dour experience. (laughs) Now, for some of you, you may be surprised to see the disciples of John the Baptist in this, because you would think, well, aren't they the same? I mean, like, wouldn't they be friends of Jesus? Well, certainly they were, but John, you'll find out in other Gospels, has constantly trying to get his disciples to stop following him and his way of doing things and to follow Jesus. (laughs) And so some people were so, I mean, just as Jesus has kind of popular fans, so also John had popular fans. And they may have not been in it for the right reasons, and so they still adopted some of these harsh expressions of commitment just like the Pharisees did. And so the people of the day are asking, why aren't your disciples so committed? Why don't they show commitment in the same way that all the other religious people show their commitment? And Jesus' answer is pretty clear. He says in verse 19, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now Jesus answers their question with an illustration. And I love that. Basically, he's saying... That, you know, the religion of the day, it may have been popular to express your commitment by doing things that seemed serious and somber and restrictive. But Jesus is saying, that doesn't match my ministry. My ministry is characterized by joy. And there was no greater picture of joy in the first century world than a wedding. Now, for men today, a wedding may not be the greatest expression of joy. Uh, you go, you know you need to be there, uh, you bought them a gift, uh, you know, you, 
But uh, ladies may enjoy it, but men endure it unless it's their own. <laughs> but even ours was 20 minutes long, no kidding, 20 minutes, right? Because I wanted it to be as quick as possible because I was just ready to move on to the next thing. Yes, I'm committed to this woman, let's go. <laughs> but in this day, actually, the wedding was a great party. I know you think, think that you probably threw a great party <laughs> at your wedding, but this was a really enjoyable event. In fact, it was such a big deal in that culture that they would take seven days off of work to participate in a wedding. It was a seven-day-long party, and they did nothing but eat and drink and dance. They even would spend the night in the same compound as the groom and the bride in many cases. And for those working-class people, this was literally the highlight of their life. Many of you in here take multiple vacations per year. You know, you have these multiple getaways, but for them, if the stuff wasn't done, people would die, food wouldn't be on the table, they couldn't take any time off, and so the only time that they would ever have in their life just to get away and have fun would be at a wedding. And you know what your responsibility was if you were invited to the wedding? It was to party. You were supposed to eat, you were supposed to drink, you were supposed to dance, you were supposed to enhance the experience and celebrate this couple coming together in union. It wouldn't make any sense at all for someone to come up to a wedding and say, uh, no, thank you, I'm fasting right now. Did you know that the popular, even the scribes of that day taught that if you were involved in a wedding ceremony, you were freed of all your religious obligations, even to fast. You got a free pass. So let's say that you had committed to fast and you were invited to a wedding. You, could not, you were expected not to fast at that time so that you could celebrate this special day. It even overrode religious obligations. So what does Jesus say? He said, look, this doesn't match. He claims that the bridegroom, he himself is Israel's bridegroom and that he has come and this is a time of celebration. The old ways of expressing commitment through saying no to self and through cutting out food and doing all these ritualistic, empty, dour type things, that, that was the old way. But the new way, this is joy, this is celebration. I am here. You express commitment differently to me. Do you get the picture? And even in this, he is making a huge statement because in the Old Testament, the lover of Israel was no one less than God himself. The bridegroom was God. You see that in Isaiah 54, verses 5 and 6. Also in Isaiah 62, verse 5. You see it again in Hosea 2, verses 19 and 20. Jesus is saying, I have come. God is in your presence. This is something to rejoice in, not something to erect some type of ritual, a ritual for. And so that being said, Jesus wants to make the picture even more clear. He's saying, look, the way of showing commitment to me is not the same as the old religious system. It's different. This is something that's fueled by joy because God is here. God is with you. The kingdom has come, not is coming. And so he gives two more pictures. Two more pictures to help the guys understand that the old way of doing things with all of this harshness and rigidity was going to be totally incompatible with the way that Jesus expected things to be done. And those two pictures are pretty simple, but they're a little foreign to us. The first one is of a picture of a cloth and a patch. The second one is of wine and wineskins. Now, um, has anybody here, and I really mean this 
for you to like raise your hand. I don't need a testimony. Just raise your hand. Have any of you patched anything in the last year? You've patched a garment of some type in the last year. Oh, one person. Okay, great. That's exactly what I was expecting. Actually, this is more than I expected. I didn't expect anybody to raise their hand. All right, since we don't typically patch clothes, we have a problem with, like, we have too many clothes. We're just trying to get rid of them. We, you know, they, like, grow like mold, you know, and then we have yard sales to try to get rid of them. We don't have the problem of ever patching clothes because we get so many new clothes in. But you can think back and imagine what a patch would be like. I mean, you take a piece of cloth and you put it over the, the tear and you're expecting it to hold and to cover up the tear. Now, even though you don't patch cloths, I think all of you do know what happens to new cloth when you wash it and you dry it. What happens to it? It shrinks. We've all had that misfortune before with some article of clothing that we love in the dryer. Now, can you imagine, though, if you had a garment, let's say that I have a garment right here, that's hanging over this podium, and that I cut a hole out of the garment, and then I was going to patch it with something, what would happen if I took an old garment that had already been washed and pre-shrunk and put a new patch over top of it that has never been pre-shrunk, and then the first time it gets washed and dries, what's going to happen to that patch? It's going to come in. It's going to shrink, right? And you know what it's going to do? It's going to tear the fabric and make an even bigger hole. Now, the point of Jesus' illustration here is like saying, Look, new patches don't work on old clothes. Not only are they incompatible, but they're actually destructive. And in a similar way, the old way of celebrating or indicating religious commitment isn't going to work. The new way not only is incompatible, but it actually destroys the old way of doing things. And just in case you don't get the picture, he gives us a second one. He says, all right, think about wine and wineskins. Now, this is where we got to think, Something that's totally different than us. We don't have wineskins. We put things in bottles. We put things in jars. But you know what they did? They had bottles and jars, but they also had these kind of like leather canteens, if you will. It was typically just a piece of goat hide that they would take, and they would ball it up, and then they would stitch it on one side, and it would hold liquid, namely water or wine. Now, whether you drink or don't drink, it doesn't matter. You understand what fermentation is. When you take... Some substance, like grape juice, and you let it sit there and rot, something's going to happen to it. It's called fermentation. And the yeast and the sugar that's in the grape juice releases ethanol and carbon dioxide as a byproduct. And it releases this gas and it begins to swell. Maybe you've seen that before if you've ever made yeast. right? If you've ever had yeast and you've had to feed it and you put it in a plastic bag, what does the bag do? It swells up. In a similar way, they would put wine in wineskins, and they knew that if you had an old wineskin, if you had an old dry leather bag, and you stick a new wine into it, and then it's allowed to ferment, you know what it's going to do to the bag? It's going to explode it like a balloon. It just doesn't work. Not only are they incompatible, but it would actually be destructive to try to contain this new substance in this old one. And in a similar way, Jesus is saying, look, the gospel, me being here, the bridegroom being present, cannot be celebrated or contained in the old religious way of doing things. They're incompatible and even destructive. So they thought of old wineskins and old cloth. They thought, you know what, if you're going to express commitment, 
You're going to fast, and you're going to be harsh, and you're going to be sour, and you're going to be mean, and you're going to observe all types of rituals. But Jesus was saying, you cannot do that. I have totally changed the way people will observe commitment to Yahweh. It's totally different. You see the picture now? The point is that popular religion is about rituals to secure what is lacking in us. Jesus is about a relationship to show what is overflowing in us. Let me repeat that. Popular religion is about rituals to secure what is lacking in us. Jesus is about a relationship to show what is overflowing in us. The question here may have been fasting, right? But for us, we all have our own way, depending on where we live or depending on how we grew up, We all have our own pet ways of showing religious commitment. And the question comes, does the ways that we have inherited of showing commitment to God match with Jesus' way? The popular religious way is something where we're lacking and we need to make up for it. And therefore you have, like for the Roman Catholic Church, for example, the old wineskins that are there, the old cloth would be something like confession to a priest. You're missing something, you need to make up for it, therefore you need to go, you need to confess to the priest, you need to do acts of penance, you need to say a rosary, you put a small pebble in your shoe, you need to go take a cold shower, you need to do a midnight prayer vigil, you need to do something to make up what's lacking. That's how you express commitment. In Eastern religions, it's, you've got something that's lacking, you need to make up for it, you need to do meditation, you need to do yoga, you need to buy a special little altar and put it in your house and then give it a piece of fruit and light a candle every day. There's something that you have to do To secure what is lacking. That's the normal way of expressing religious commitment. That's the way the standard establishment of religion works. I think I could even see this in Christian places. Especially for people like me who grew up in the Bible Belt. We have our own expressions of filling up what's lacking. We don't see ourselves as righteous before God. But we want to make sure that God likes us. So we tout ourselves and pat ourselves on the back for the number of Christian books that we read. How many large charitable contributions we make. How long our prayers are. How consistent our prayer times are. And the whole host of things that we don't do in combination with our church attendance. And we think, because I do all these things, I I am religious. And yet Jesus says, if you want to express commitment, it's not just about what you do. Notice how I said that. It's not just about what you do. I didn't say it doesn't matter what you do. It's not just about what you do. It's about what's on the inside. Jesus said expressing commitment to me would be a matter of joy. You would be excited by the fact that the bridegroom is with you. It's not just about your laws, but it's about your laws and your love. Your love for Christ. That's why I read the passage in Isaiah for you this morning. They were doing all the stuff, and yet they were so empty on the inside. And Jesus says, look, if you want to express commitment to me, it may manifest itself in some external way, but it cannot manifest itself apart from some type of internal joy in the fact that Jesus has come and is present with us. And popular religion hates that. They like their checklist alone, and Jesus says the checklist by itself will not do it. It has to be first and foremost motivated by a heart of love that the king is here. It's not just obedience and ritual. 
So the challenge for us is that we would let the presence of the King take us to ever-expanding levels of Christian commitment, that we would serve Him out of a heart of joy and not just legalism. So clearly, Jesus' expression of faithfulness Jesus' expression of religious commitment clashes with popular religion. Yet, there's another reason that popular religion hates Jesus. There's another reason why they don't get along, and that is he reinterprets their rules. He not only changes the way you express faithfulness, but Jesus' interpretation of the rules also clashes with popular religion. And that's what we see in 2.23 to 3.6. 2.23 to 3.6. Jesus' interpretation of the rules clashes with popular religion. Now, what we have here, before I read the text, I want you to notice, uh, you've got two different stories here, from 2.23 to 2.28, and then another one from 3.1 to 3.6. Now, what you need to understand is that even though these are two different stories, they're both about the same thing. They're both about observing the Sabbath. 2.23 to 2.28 are all about Jesus' declaration of authority over the Sabbath. 3.1 to 6 is about Jesus' demonstration of authority over the Sabbath. But it's all one big story. Let me read the first one for you, the declaration of Jesus' authority. Look with me in verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing? Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now we need to take a time out here for a moment. And you've got to understand the Sabbath before we go any farther in this. Because it all deals with the Sabbath. For those of you who grew up in church, you may remember. The Sabbath was a special and holy day that God's people were to observe every week and they were to observe it by doing religious things and not doing secular things for them it was all about the cessation of work and the presence of rest god first instituted the sabbath by the way not in mosaic law but in genesis chapter 2 right he rested and he commended that uh, the people that he created would observe such a day of rest but then we see it iterated for us again in exodus 31 verses 14 and 15 But what you need to understand about these people is that the Sabbath wasn't just like one rule among many. It was like the rule. (laughs) This one was the one that was the most public, the most obvious. It set them apart more than anything, even circumcision. See, circumcision for the males identified one's body with Judaism. And that's a pretty obvious sign. But nothing was as obvious as the Sabbath. It identified one's entire time and calendar with God. The pagan nations would look around and say, why did these people not work at one day? It just didn't make any sense to the rest of the world that these people would stop working. In fact, they were so committed to the Sabbath that in one of the intertestamental books that are not inspired, we have a record 
of Jews being willing to die at the invasion of Antiochus Epiphanes because they were not willing to fight on the Sabbath. Now you talk about commitment to a law? That's pretty committed. If you're saying, oh, it's Saturday, I'm sorry, I can't fight today. You can come in and kill us if you want to. You're pretty committed. But what I want you to understand is that Jesus, I mean, excuse me, God, when he had established the Sabbath, it was a very simple thing. It was just don't work. Rest. Enjoy the day. But the Pharisees had turned it into something totally different. I mean, what was interesting about these Pharisees is that you know, as I said from last week, that they were all about purity because they wanted to bring in the kingdom. And they were so excited about purity and and bringing it in that they even added laws to God's laws. And as would be expected, they added laws to God's laws about the Sabbath. God's law simply said, observe a weekly special day by resting and not working. But then they added all kinds of stuff about what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. I mean, just a few of the more ridiculous illustrations of this that I've come across in my research is that they were allowed to stitch one stitch, but not two stitches. They were allowed to write one letter, but not two letters. And if you were a scribe, you couldn't carry a pen across the room because that might be considered work. And if you actually had a... We all know that to drive a furrow in a field, that would be work. And because of that, you don't want to accidentally work in your house by dragging a chair on the ground because it can make a furrow in the dirt and therefore you've worked. Ridiculous, right? (laughs) What did God say? Don't work, rest. Enjoy me on the Sabbath. But they had come up with an entire oral tradition about all the things that could and could not be done. And somehow, in some way, in their rule system, these disciples had broken their law. And you know what they did? The text simply records that they were walking through a field and they had put their hands out and they had grabbed some grain. They crushed the grain in their hands so as to separate the wheat from the chaff and ate the wheat. Common practice. Did you know that that was even allowed in Deuteronomy 28? The, the Pharisees, they're not upset that the guy stole anything. They, what they're upset about is that just simply that action itself, walking along a field, Grabbing some grain, crushing it in your hand, and placing it in your mouth was considered work. And that they had somehow profaned the Sabbath. And Jesus says, that's ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense. This interpretation of the law will not work. You can't restrict people in this way. And so Jesus goes back to 1 Samuel with this story that was popular with them. Their guy in the Old Testament was King David. And so Jesus goes to their guy himself, King David, the anointed king in which one time when need called for it, on the Sabbath day presumably, David goes into the tabernacle. His men have been on the run from Saul. They are hungry. They are thirsty. And he asks the high priest at that time, can I just have the bread that you would take from the table and you're going to throw away anyway? Can we have that for our men? Now, if you interpreted the law a certain way, that's probably not a good thing to do, but this was a matter of life or death. It was reality versus ritual here, and David was just, as this anointed king, saying, let's go with reality, and the high priest agrees, and they give him the bread. That's a simple story, right? No need to get too detailed about that. The story is this. Jesus explains that the chosen king contradicted a popular interpretation of sacred law to do good. 
The point is that David, as the chosen king, exercised authority over the popular interpretation of the law to do good. And what does Jesus do? Nothing different. Jesus, the chosen king, could exercise authority over the popular interpretation of the law to do good. These guys just needed something to eat, and Jesus gave it to them. It's not work. He didn't break any laws. But it's the statement, though, that's scandalous. Notice what Jesus says in verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now to help you understand this, I just want you to get that we're not just talking about the Sabbath this morning. The Sabbath was just their most important rule. But what Jesus is doing here is He is setting Himself up over all of their man-made rules. And he's saying that he reigns over them all. Their interpretation just wasn't going to work. He had the the authority to declare how the law should be interpreted. Remember, he calls himself the Son of Man. That's that messianic reference from Daniel chapter 7. And then he says he's not just Lord in the Sabbath. He is Lord over the Sabbath. He exercises authority over their greatest law. He says, look, your religion may have its rules, but I rule over the rules. Jesus' disclosure here reminds me of an episode of Undercover Boss that I came across from a few years ago. If you've never seen the show, basically you have a CEO or an executive from a major company. He goes undercover and he works in these entry-level positions of the business to kind of learn you know, what's going right and what's going wrong at the grassroots level in the business. It's kind of a fun thing to watch, right? Like, this is the guy that owns it all. He's in disguise, and he's just working with the normal folks. Uh, one of the stories, actually, this one that I'm referring to, happened in Homestead, Florida, which I think is a couple hours away from here. And it was the Checkers. You've never been, I've never been to one. <laughs> uh, but it's a cheeseburger place. And Rick Silva, the CEO, goes to work at this lowly you know, store in Homestead, Florida. And, and the camera shows him. He, he's working... He's working with this employee at the fry station. The employee's teaching the CEO how to operate the fry machine. And, um, and he was talking to the guy. This young guy's named Todd, and they're just talking about the machine. Well, the manager comes flying in and just, I mean, very rudely tells him to be quiet. <laughs> well, that goes okay, but the next thing was just absolutely unacceptable. A few hours later, the manager threatened to beat this guy who was working at the fry station for not working hard enough. That's a no-no. So one of the things that has very rarely happened on the show happens. The boss breaks character. He admits, he tells the guy, look, let's step outside right now. I own this place. And then he shuts down the store that day. He closes the shift. And then he sends the guy off to do some type of remedial management work. And basically saying, look, I know you exercise authority in this place, but this is not how I intended my business to be run. You can't do it that way. I own it. I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. The religious establishment had created this monopoly for itself, and they were very comfortable with their way of doing things, and Jesus just finally steps up and says, no, this is not what my law was intended to do. I own this. It's a huge statement. But the question is, can he back that up? He just claimed to be the ruler over all their rules, but... What authority does he have to do that? 
Basically, the question would be, okay, well, prove to me that you're the owner of this company. And so Jesus does. Which brings us to the demonstration of his authority in chapter 3. It says, and again, he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on what? The Sabbath. So that they might accuse him. Now, get the picture here. This is a pretty precarious setting. The synagogue is the home turf of the religious establishment. Their day, they think, is the Sabbath. This is their playground. He's going into their house, so they think. And what I want you to see here is that what have we seen Jesus doing all the time so far in the book of Mark? Every time he goes somewhere, what does he do? He is teaching, right? Notice here, he doesn't even come in to teach. This is the first time that we've seen Jesus show up somewhere to a synagogue and not teach. He wasn't showing up to teach a lesson. He was showing up to show a lesson. He wanted to prove something. And so he goes right into the synagogue. And the Pharisees, because of that provocative statement that he had made presumably a week earlier, they're waiting for him just to do something on the Sabbath. And they think, you know what, with this guy here who attends our congregation with this withered hand, this palsied hand, maybe this will be the case. We're going to get him right here. And everything centers around this one man in the crowd, the man with the most notable physical need. And what I find interesting is that Jesus steps into this situation with a guy who has a non-physically threatening disease. Yes, his hand is withered, but it's not like he's going to die. This isn't the biggest healing miracle that Jesus ever does. He intentionally picks someone who isn't in the most life-threatening situation of all time. Jesus could have just as easily healed this guy's hand on Sunday or Monday as he would have on that Sabbath day, that Saturday. And yet he picks this, and look at verse 3. Notice this provoking speech. He said to the man with the withered hand, in the middle of this congregation, this church service, come here, literally meaning stand up in the midst. Stand up in the middle of everybody. And he said to him, to them, talking to the Pharisees, with this guy standing in the middle of the room. I can't imagine how awkward this may have been for him. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. So this is what he does. You've got to understand this question here. Hang with me for a second. And then we're going to run our way to home base. Jesus asked them a very provocative question. And I want you to know how provocative it really is. He asked them to clarify their purpose for the Sabbath. He knows it's the Sabbath day, and he wants them to say, what should be done on the Sabbath day? Why does the Sabbath day exist? And what he does is he gives them a mutually exclusive choice between their interpretation of the Sabbath and his. If they were going to have their way on the Sabbath, he would, they would basically be following the rules at all costs, regardless of the effect that it would have on the individual's. Healing and first aid and things of that nature, that broke their laws. You couldn't do anything like that on the Sabbath day. But Jesus' interpretation of the law was this. Break your made-up rules, talking about their made-up rules, to fulfill Jesus and Moses' original intent of the law. When Jesus talks about good and when he talks about life, he's alluding to Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, which sums up the entire focus of what the law came to do. And he says, look, the law, Moses stated, was for good and it was for life. So now these guys have a choice. 
They have a choice. Are they going to say, yes, we agree that the law is for good in life, and therefore this man should be healed, thereby conceding that you're Lord of the Sabbath? Or are we going to say no to this and admit that we're really against God's intention of the law? So they say, silent. Wait. And then look at verse 5. He looked around at them with anger. It's the first time we see this in Mark. Grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out in his hand was restored. (laughs) Jesus may have intentionally broken their law, but he did not break God's law. He was doing exactly what God intended. Good should be done on the Sabbath. This is not work. This is life. This is good. My laws are good. You have made them a bad thing. And Jesus shows here that he has no regard or respect for man-made religion and rules. He makes the rules. No one else. And they hated that. Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Having denied Jesus the right to do good on the Sabbath, notice that, they've denied Jesus the right to do good on the Sabbath, or so they thought, they then immediately go out and conspire to do evil on the Sabbath. (laughs) Isn't that ironic? They wanted to utterly destroy Jesus. That's what the verb literally means. He had ripped the deed for their religious monopoly right out of their grubby little hands and they wanted to make sure that he was going to die for it. So do Jesus and popular religion get along? Doesn't seem like it. Would Jesus' religious inventory align with those of the popular religious crowd today? doesn't seem like you know when i read through this story it it reminds me of kids getting together and playing a board game just a few weeks ago we went out on a sunday night and we decided that we needed to get the kids another board game they didn't have one that all the kids could play so we're sorting through our options at target and we land on sorry it just it met the age qualifications. It was like just the perfect thing that we needed. I've never played Sorry. <laughs> but we get in and play it. Um, but having been an older brother before, I know how Sorry should, can work. <laughs> you know, like when nobody really knows the rules, you begin to make up rules. And they all conveniently benefit you, right? <laughs> like, no, 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 you can't, you know, you know when I bump you, you're going to go all the way back and... Every time I skip over you because mine's yellow, that means you lose. I mean, like, just the dumbest rules. The kids, I mean, if you were just to let some kids loose on a game of sorry without anybody interpreting the rules for them, the oldest kid is always going to stand up, he's always going to make his own rules, and he's always going to benefit himself. Eden, you did not do that, I understand. But being an older brother, I know that that happens a lot. It seems like that's exactly what was happening here. There was no authority on hand, and these guys had just decided, you know what, we're going to make up some rules. And conveniently enough, it's going to be the stuff that we're good at, the stuff that we like, and the stuff that we were raised with. And Jesus steps in like an adult on the scene and says, look, that may be the way you want to play the game, but I've set up the game differently so that everybody can enjoy it. You're not in charge of this. I am. You will play by my rules. And that's just not compatible with the religious establishment. 
That is not good news for them. What does this mean for us? Look, guys, I want you to understand this. Jesus being the Lord over the law is a good thing. He is ruling for our good. That's what this story reminds us of. God is not some type of cosmic killjoy floating up around in heaven looking to strike bolts of bad days to anybody that happens to have a smile on their face. As much as some people would try to characterize God's law as that, He has established rules and law for our good. And this story shows us that He is not getting rid of the rules, but He is interpreting them in a way that shows that He is for us, not against us. His laws, whether they be from the Sabbath to our stewardship to our sexual behavior, or for our good. And He puts them in place to serve us, not to destroy us. See, here's the deal. A failure to appreciate the goodness of Jesus' lordship and rule either betrays a misunderstanding of Jesus or a mutiny against Him. If you think that there's no... There should be no, you should do whatever you want and that it would be mean of Jesus to exercise some type of authority over your life. You just don't understand the goodness of his law. Point of the confusion here is that when popular religion makes the rules, things don't turn out good. When Jesus makes the rules, things do turn out good. I have seen instance and instance and instance of this, and I don't mean to just keep beating up on the Roman Catholic Church. But have we not seen over 2,000 years of church history what happens when popes and priests become the primary interpreters of the rules? They become wealthy, fat, and even to the point of abusing those who are more healthy. When somebody gets that type of authority, they'll take Jesus' laws and then they'll start to reinterpret them for their own good. Bad things happen. We've had entire countries go to war over that type of interpretation of the law. It's not just in the Roman Catholic Church, but I grew up in fundamentalism. And I have seen pastors grab hold of God's rules and then twist them in such a way that they would only benefit themselves. It makes them wealthier and it makes them happier, all to the oppression of the people who are squalling below them. It is a pitiful sight. And we're reminded here that Jesus' rules are a good thing. When man rules and takes God's rule and he tries to push it on other people, it's a bad thing. But when Jesus discloses the intent behind his rules, it's it's great. It gives life. It's not just fundamentalist preachers and Roman Catholic popes, but you've seen the pictures of these occult leaders. As they tell these people about all the stuff that they conveniently have to do, the popular ones today would be Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. But some of the more niche groups, I think, better illustrate this. You take David Koresh and his Branch Davidians and how convenient it was for him to claim biblical authority and then to have these people live under his rule and his domination. It's sickening. And Jesus says, no, you don't have the authority to do that. I have a different intent for the law. Uh, Ron Hubbard is the founder of, of Scientology. I watched it interesting. Interesting documentary on this probably last year called Going Clear. Uh, And if you can ever get a hold of it, I encourage you to watch it. It's fascinating. But there's a scene in there where Hubbard actually describes his purpose for Scientology. Listen to this. Scientology started out for me purely a way to make money. And it worked. Hubbard admits that. 
And then he tells this, there's a sickening account of him actually describing how fascinated he was by catching people, especially clever people like fish. That's what the religious establishment is up to. When you, do, when you take God's laws and then you put them in your authority and you say you want to interpret them differently, you're only setting up your own kingdom and not the kingdom of Christ, and it is despicable. So you want to know why we don't coexist? <laughs> You've seen the sticker, right? If you have one, own your car right now. I'm not trying to be offensive, but let me tell you why it doesn't work. Let me tell you why Christianity, Jesus himself, will not coexist with everything else on your little bumper sticker. Because everything else hates the fact that he claims exclusive authority over what's right and what's wrong. They want consensus. They want validity. Jesus says, you're not even on the team. I rule the law. I determine what's right and what's wrong. And may I also add this for you today. In light of the theme of this message so far, I just would kindly remind you that just because you have rules doesn't mean you have righteousness. You understand that? I mean, look, we know a lot of good, moral, upstanding people here, especially in an area like Naples. But just because you have rules doesn't mean that you have righteousness. You only receive righteousness through Jesus and what He did for you on the cross, His death and burial and His resurrection, and then that becomes effective for you as you exercise your faith in that, you trust in that, and you repent of your sin. That's where righteousness comes from, not from your rules. So Jesus and popular religion clashed over their interpretation of the rules and their expression of faithfulness. May I add this? They still do. They not only crashed in that first century, but they clashed also here, now, today. A few years ago, a young Christian man by the name of Jefferson Bethke released a spoken word video. For those of you who aren't familiar with spoken word uh, think of modern poetry about theological topics. Okay? It's like holy hip-hop <laughs> without a beat. <laughs> it's just words. So this guy, he's a white guy up in uh, Seattle, Washington, releases this video on YouTube, and it spreads across the evangelical world like wildfire. I mean, at last glance, it had over 31 million views. And it stirred up no small amount of controversy. Some thought it was like poetry from above. Some thought it was compromised from below. I mean, it just got people at one another's throats. And I think social media debates are asinine. But this was something that like, really got people embittered and embroiled against one another. So those who hated it, their, their thing was like, I think they would just need to understand that this, the guy needs some poetic license. You know, he's doing poetry. You don't always use your literal meaning in poetry. And for those who absolutely love it, it's really, in many cases, it's pretty weak because the guy, he automatically distances Jesus from religion. Like, Jesus is one thing, religion is another. But when you read the book of James, for example, it actually says that it commends pure religion. And truth of the matter is, Christianity is a religion. As neat of a saying as it is to say that Christianity is a relationship and not a religion. That's not really biblically accurate. But with those caveats in mind, 
okay? Lest somebody attacks me on social media for supporting or not supporting this video. Let me give you a couple of lines from Jefferson that I think are extremely helpful. He writes, See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification, like a long list of chores. Like, let's dress up the outside and make look nice and neat. But it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Now, back to the point, one thing is vital to mention. How Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. One is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do, Jesus says done. Religion says slave, Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. Religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God searching for man. Isn't that good? Now, if this is really true, if there really is a difference between the popular religious establishment and the way that Jesus intended for things to be done in His Word, can I ask you to do something? I want you to examine your heart right now on the basis of Jesus and just see where you stand. Forget the RCI. <laughs> Let's think about what Jesus teaches and the way that He prioritizes things. Look, if you're here and you're not saved, here's how your inventory would work. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Does it bring you joy to know that Jesus Christ has come and is coming? That's what I mean by a relationship with Jesus. Like, do you love Him and care for Him? And do you know that He loves and He cares for you? That's relationship. Is He the delight of your life? Is He your greatest hope in death? If He's not... I would simply urge you to trust in Him and to depend on Him today. It isn't your list or your performance or the amount of things that you could do that would ever bring you to Jesus. Jesus has brought you to Himself, and that brings with it some radical consequences for your everyday living. It will change the way you feel, the way you believe. And if you're not sure about that, and you don't understand what I'm talking about, or you don't get the difference between rules and relationships and rituals and religion. I understand I've thrown out a lot of big words here today. Look, talk to me as we leave. Talk to somebody around you. We want to make sure you understand that more than anything else here today. But if you're here and you're safe, here's how we could run our assessment, okay? Um, and I'm basing this right off of Mark chapter 2, verse 1. All the way down to chapter 3, verse 6, I have four questions for you. No scale of 1 to 5 here, just a yes or a no. Okay? Since Mark 2, 1, uh, 2, 1 through 3, 6 shows us the differences between Jesus and the popular religion, here's my question for you. This is, this is the religious commitment inventory that I'm going to base off of this text. One, have you been forgiven? Yes or no? Two, do you recognize the goodness of God's grace toward your scandalous sinfulness? You get that from the story of the tax collector. Do you recognize the goodness of His grace toward your scandalous sinfulness? Yes or no? Three. Does His presence and promised return fuel your joy? Yes or no? Simple question. Does, does His presence and promised return fuel your joy? And then four. Are you living out of the intent of the law? 
as opposed to just doing some homemade checklist? Are you living the intent of the law? Or are you just running the same old Christian checklist? Now, if you answer no to any of these things, you know what the solution is? It's simply as believers to confess and repent right now before we celebrate the provision of our bridegroom. That's all. That's when we were back to Isaiah, remember? It was because of their religious hypocrisy. God's people, we have a tendency for this just to to, to focus on the external, to the neglect of the internal. And you know what he said in Isaiah? He says, just just repent and you'll be forgiven. It reminds me of 1 John 1, 8, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The question is, are you fulfilling the spirit of the law? Are Are you serving Christ with joy? If that hasn't been a reality, it needs to be. And you need to confess that now before we have communion. And look, for some of you, guess what? (laughs) Because of our relationship with Jesus, it's very possible that you answered yes to all of those questions. And I rejoice with you in that. If you're serving Jesus out of the, the, the overflow of your joy, and you're just trying to walk with Him and and you, you're expressing that in good and concrete ways, and you're submitting to His Lordship, this is a great time for us. We should come to the table today with a heart of celebration. And I say this especially about communion. Sometimes we make it such a somber event, but it really is a celebration of our relationship with Christ. And so when you enjoy that cup, and when you enjoy that bread today, enjoy it. Realize that Christ has accomplished something. And because of that broken body and because of that shed blood, you are now right with him. So I'm going to ask our deacons now if they would go ahead and prepare for the Lord's Supper. I'm making their way to the back. And now you can see why it's especially fitting for us to close our service today with the Lord's table. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we need to come to this event with intentional contemplation. We need to see whether we're right before Him or not. And so that's why we always want to start off our time around the table, examining ourselves to to see whether these things are true of us. And I would encourage you, again, as you examine your hearts right now, don't just think about a list. Think about your love, your affection for Christ. Examine those things. Make sure your heart is right before the Lord. And if you're here today, say, you know what, I don't love the Lord, I don't know that I love the Lord, I'm not even sure if I'm a a Christian, I'm not a part of a a church anywhere. Look, you don't need to participate in this. The Bible warns us in 1 Corinthians 11 that you need to be sure not to partake of this meal unworthily. That means if you're not a Christian, please do not partake. And we're not going to embarrass you in any way. Actually, the, the, the plate will be passed to you, and you can just let it pass you by. And I would encourage you to use this time for contemplation and reflection and meditation. But if you're here today and you're, you're a part of Christ's church, uh, you're a Christian, you have believed the same gospel that we preach here, I invite you to be a part of this meal. Let's prepare our hearts right now in prayer, confessing any known sin to the Lord. We'll have a few moments of silence and then I'll lead us uh, as we pray.